Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast about how people have applied ideas from outside software to the endless production of draft episode scripts that have to be thrown away, delaying release for way too long. Episode 31, Foucault, Discipline and Punish, Part 2, The Factory. Last episode was first about an age in which the idea of criminality revolved around an insult to the power of the sovereign. That age gave way to one that centered how a potential criminal thought. That latter age fizzled and was replaced by an age that was about the power of constraint and habit, one where the verb to punish and the verb to discipline were, practically speaking, synonyms. This episode is about how the New Age modeled punishment after factory work and the prison after the factory, which leads to a brief discussion of what Foucault means by power. The problem with Foucault's conception of power is that there's not really anything you can do with it. Not that I can see. It's not something that you can, as the normal tagline for the podcast puts it, apply to software. I'll make the next and final episode independent of this one, so feel free to skip it. But you'll miss my use of the cult horror movie Cube, which is the best description of Foucaultian power that I've seen. In addition to the movie, I'm again using Foucault's Discipline and Punishment and Prado's Starting with Foucault. To recapitulate, crime was shifting away from violent crime and toward property crime. Property criminals were seen as lazy people whose character needed to be fixed. The assumption was that forcing people to go through the emotions of working would literally habituate them to work. As someone wrote in 1808, Compelled to work, convicts may come in the end to like it. When they have reaped the reward, they will acquire the habit, the taste, the need for occupation. This was not exactly a new idea. It was backed up by success at using drills and discipline to improve the physical performance of soldiers, students, and factory workers. Correct motion could economically be made into a habit so ingrained it could be triggered at will by a signal, a word, or the ringing of a bell, say. While it may seem peculiar to think that what works for training the body would also work for training the mind, Western culture, at least, has a long tradition of believing that. Approximately 2,400 years ago, influential guy Aristotle said, roughly, We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. More than 2,300 years after Aristotle, also influential guy Kurt Vonnegut said, We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. I haven't found any psychology-psychology evidence in favor of this folk psychology, but there doesn't seem to be evidence against it either. So, changing mental habits seemed worth a try. One of the ways people reason is by analogy to dominant symbols of their age. Way back when clockwork mechanisms were marvels of technology, people analogized the mind to clockwork. Then, quoting Peter Leithart, by the 19th century, though, steam technology had taken over the European imagination, and metaphors of letting off steam and safety valve were applied to social and psychological realities, not least by Freud. Perhaps no steam, no Freud. After World War II, the mind became analogized to the computer. 
As I write, it's becoming increasingly popular to analogize the mind to a predictive language model with a huge training set and a judicious amount of randomness. In the time Foucault is concerned with, the factory was a dominant symbol. It was a particular set of technologies for organizing people who are making things. And that set of technologies was wildly successful. People in factories made things far more productively than ever before. So it was naturally to extrapolate from that to organizing people for other purposes, specifically for the purpose of reforming them. The prior short-lived age of reason approach to punishment had already hoped that punishment via work would rehabilitate the guilty, but their approach was more like a chain gang or team that tours the city, visibly doing public works to pay their debt to society and also to serve as a constant reminder of what happens to criminals. That didn't mesh with the intellectual influence of the new, larger, division-of-labor-style factories and their emphasis on minute control of what Foucault calls docile bodies. Last episode, I mentioned the novel Too Like the Lightning. In it, there's a scene in which the narrator and his fellow criminals are cleaning up after a sewage spill or something equally unpleasant. They were doing it as a team with all the usual sorts of team banter. That's kind of inevitable when you're working outdoors, fixing different problems every day, interacting in random ways with the general public. That experience is not what factory work was like. Here's a quote from 1808. It is expressly forbidden during work to amuse one's companions by gestures or in any other way, to play at any game whatsoever, to eat, to sleep, to tell stories and comedies. Even during meal breaks, quote, There will be no telling of stories, adventures, or other such talk that distracts the workers from their work. Even in their factory-provided homes, workers had to be docile. From 1863, quote, Cleanliness is the order of the day. It is the heart of the regulations. There are a number of severe provisions against noise, drunkenness, disorders of all kinds. The children are better supervised and are no longer a cause of scandal. Part of the success of the factory was that it was a single place, quote, the factory was explicitly compared with the monastery, the fortress, a walled town. The guardian, here Foucault starts an internal quote, will open the gates only on the return of the workers. A quarter of an hour later, no one will be admitted. At the end of the day, the workshop's heads will hand back the keys to the Swiss guard of the factory, who will then open the gates. The order and inspection that must be maintained require that all workers be assembled under the same roof so that the partner who is entrusted with the management of the manufactory may prevent and remedy abuses that may arise among the workers and arrest their progress at the outset. Close quote. By the way, they mean abuses by the workers, not abuses of the workers. That latter wasn't a huge concern for factory owners and designers. Reasoning by analogy to improving workers, to improve prisoners, you want a factory-like prison, not a chain gang outdoors. An interacting group is too hard to control in the desired amount of detail. However, a single undivided space isn't enough. Space must be partitioned, and different subspaces should have different functions. That could be seen in hospitals as well as in factories. 
Apparently, prior to this period, patients just sort of wandered around the hospital. There wasn't the notion of, say, an infectious disease ward where people with infectious diseases would stay put. There wasn't even the idea of an individual patient having an assigned bed. I imagine my wife would have been a less effective doctor if, during morning rounds, she didn't know where to find her patients. The endpoint of the partitioning of space is the one-person prison cell consciously modeled after a monk's cell in a monastery. A monk's cell is a place where he prays or meditates in order to become less sinful, and the prisoner's cell was to have the same purpose. From 1831, quote, Thrown into solitude, the convict reflects. Placed alone in the presence of his crime, he learns to hate it, and, if his soul is not yet blunted by evil, it is in isolation that remorse will come to assail him. Monasteries were also, quote, masters of time. They had long had the strict schedules that factory owners craved. Much preferable to, say, the shipyards of England at roughly the same time. There, workers would knock off work toward the end of the day, at a time of their own choosing, to collect the scrap wood that they were traditionally entitled to as part of their pay. See the PDF of Linebaugh's chapter, Ships and Chips, Technological Repression and the Origin of the Wage, given in the show notes. Our ancestors were casual about time, everything really, in a way that seriously creeps out my strict German upbringing. I think of this partitioning of time as being akin to the partitioning of space. There is work time and non-work time. Non-work doesn't happen during work time. And the transition between the two happens at the same moment every day. Scheduled time periods don't bleed into each other any more than rooms have ambiguous boundaries. I speculate this goes along with a society-wide increased policing of boundaries, including the boundaries of concepts. The idea that concepts have definite, necessary, and sufficient conditions dates back a long way, but it seems fuzziness of concept boundaries was more acceptable back in the day. Someday, perhaps, I'll have an episode covering two marvelously named books, Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, and The Big Book of Concepts. This sort of regimentation was also adapted to the prison, where people were to move according to the clock, under the constant observation of guards who could prevent and remedy abuses that may arise. It's worth noting at this point that all this didn't work, and they knew it at the time. Sure, some prisoners were rehabilitated, but there was nothing like the success that armies and factories had seen with similar methods. As you'd expect, there was some explaining of the you-didn't-try-hard-enough or you-just-didn't-do-it-right variety. And they might have been right, as such explanations are sometimes right today. For example, here's a comment from 1842. Quote, Between 1,000 and 1,500 convicts live under the surveillance of between 30 and 40 supervisors, who can preserve some kind of security only by depending on informers, that is to say, on the corruption that they carefully sow themselves. Who are these warders? Retired soldiers, men uninstructed in their task, making a trade of guarding malefactors. In the slang of my youth, the governments cheaped out and they got what they paid for. However, it does seem that the idea of reprogramming prisoners' wetware via the creation of habits, largely went away. But, and this is important, that's about all that went away. 
Those who knew Pennsylvania's 1829 Eastern State Penitentiary would easily recognize its modern-day equivalent, except that not everyone is in solitary confinement and prisoners are allowed to have books other than the Bible. So why did the prison linger on once its original justification went away? It's easy to blame it on people. I could point to Upton Sinclair's quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, and say that of course prison wardens, prison guards, prison funders, and the like would react to the failure by tweaking the way prison works, not by wanting their jobs replaced and prisons done away with. Or I could point to episode 7 on Lakatosh and his claim that people don't give up theories just because theories fail. People need to be wowed by a competitive theory's positive results. Foucault, however, has an alternate explanation, which I'm going to illustrate with the horror movie Cube. The movie starts with a person awakening in a cube-shaped room. He walks through a door into another cube-shaped room. A wire mesh zips out, slices him into pieces, and then retracts into the wall. The plot then follows a group of people who wander through this structure, cubicle rooms with other cubicle rooms on all six sides, trying to stay alive. To do that, they have to solve puzzles that indicate which adjoining cubes are safe. Of course, the puzzles keep getting harder. I couldn't find the final version of the screenplay, but on page 41 of draft 6, the character Worth reveals he had a hand in drawing plans for a shell around a giant cubicle structure, the one they're in, not knowing what was going to be inside that shell. Naturally, they want to know who hired him. He says, quote, I didn't ask. I never even left my office. I talked on the phone to some people, other guys like me, specialists, people working on small details. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody cared. Another character, Holloway, claims there must be a secretive conspiracy employing ignorant dupes like Worth. But Worth corrects her, quote, This may be hard for you to understand, but there is no conspiracy. No one is in charge. It's a headless blunder operating under the illusion of a master plan. Can you grasp that? Big Brother is not watching you. They object that somebody had to have intended to build such a death machine, Worth replies, quote, Somebody might have known sometime before they got fired or voted out or sold it. But if this place ever had a purpose, it got miscommunicated, lost in the shuffle. This is an accident, a forgotten perpetual public works project. Do you think anyone wants to ask questions? All they want is a clear conscience and a fat paycheck. The Quentin character objects, it can't be accidental. Look around. It's perfect. Worth. That's the funny part. The really sick part. This turkey works. I take that to be Foucault's model for the prison and indeed all of modern society. Some specific people had some intentions, sure, and that caused them to take actions. Those actions affected the actions of other people. Some later actions became more possible, others less possible. Our society is an emergent property of this network or graph of actions forever acting on other actions. Because this graph has cycles, it can be self-reinforcing. Think of the way gift exchanges are described as sustaining societies in episode 13. A Tiv woman will give another woman a gift and expect a return gift. 
not immediately, but later, and not with something of the same value. It has to be worth a little less or a little more. That way, every gift brings with it the need for another gift, and the interactions that make up their society never stop. Foucault thinks that, in the century spanning 1800, we happened to blunder into a self-sustaining network of actions encouraging or discouraging other specific actions. Put differently, we wandered into a local minimum. The turkey works. That's a pretty chilling idea. It's a vision of humanity as a substrate upon which modernity grew because ideas like the disciplined factory and a particular kind of expertise, next episode, and panopticism all happen to land on fertile soil, us, at the right time. Foucault unfortunately uses the word power for this slippery idea of actions affecting actions. It's unfortunate because we're used to thinking of people exercising power. We're like Holloway and Cube, thinking there's always a shadowy someone behind the scenes making things the way they are. Foucault's power is way more indirect and impersonal than that. Let me quote this from Prado. Power is not anything anyone has or controls, and it serves no ends or goals. Moreover, Foucault writes, quote, People know what they do. They frequently know why they do what they do. But what they don't know is what what they do does. French intellectuals sure love their wordplay. This makes it seem pointless to do anything, and Foucault is credibly accused of nihilism. However, I want to finish by refusing to stare into that abyss with two points. One, even if Foucault is right, he's dealing on the scale of entire societies. Sure, my actions are constrained by power, but not completely. Foucault allows that I can still make choices. And sure, I can't predict how my actions will ripple out to society as a whole and how they will encourage or inhibit other actions far removed from me. But the narrower the scope, I have to believe, the better my chance of controlling effects, especially as I respond to feedback. Two, I want to highlight the I have to believe in what I just said. Something I got from both Stanley Fish and Richard Rorty is, you can be talked into nihilism, into thinking that there's no intellectual reason to believe anything or to do anything on the basis of a belief. Their response is, so? We as a species aren't built for that. We just do believe things and we act on those beliefs. Foucault was a political activist. People frequently pointed out that didn't really square with his theory of power and change. I haven't seen what his response was. I like to think it was an eloquent Gallic shrug. Well, thank you for listening. Next episode, Panopticism. I promise. (laughs) 